Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Good morning, Southbridge. Thank you so much for joining us today as we continue in our series, Shift. Talking about how we live in an ever-changing world, but we have an unchanging God. Today you have the wonderful privilege of being able to hear a sermon from one of our friends, a pastor, an apologist, a professor, Sean McDowell. Sean's an apologist. He's been voted as one of the top 100 apologists in the world. He's written and edited a bunch of books. He's currently serving as a professor at Biola University. He's got a bunch of degrees. He's super smart. One of the things I love about his humility is he still teaches a high school Bible class because he wants to stay in touch with young people and what's happening. And it's one of the reasons why he has such an effective ministry. And today he's going to bring a message to us about about how to respond in this ever-changing world and what it looks like to really demonstrate Jesus to others. So let let me pray for Sean. And we're just super thankful to have you here today, Sean. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that we can open up your word. And I pray you'd open up our hearts. I pray you'd change us. I pray you'd push us. I pray you'd move us to be more and more like your son, Jesus, as a result of opening your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hey, Southbridge Church, what an honor to have a chance to be with you this Sunday. Wish I could be there in person. Obviously, due to this craziness, we can't, but that'll give us an excuse to do it sometime in the future. Pastor Scott, I appreciate the kind introduction and for this opportunity. And Pastor Dave Morley, know that the McDowell's love you and are grateful for your faithful ministry over so many years. Well, the theme that you're in right now, I think, is great. This idea of shift, that culture around us always has shifted, and it always will shift. But the gospel remains the same. What does it look like to speak faithfulness and truth in a culture that's changing quickly around us? Well, a few summers ago, my wife's family had a huge family reunion. Now, you got to realize, when it comes to family reunion with my wife's family, her dad is one of 12 brothers and sisters. So when we do family reunions, it is dozens and dozens and dozens of cousins and aunts and uncles and you name it and grandparents. Well, we were north in, in Sacramento, and one day, most in our group decided to do a whitewater rafting trip. Now, for our trip to go, it must have been like four or five rafts just for our group because our group was so big. So this was in the South Fork American River, and this was an all-day trip. We went about three or four hours in the morning, had lunch, and then went another two or three hours or so in the afternoon. And in the morning, there were kind of rapids that were ones and twos, not a big deal, stopped and had lunch. And then in the afternoon, I believe the highest was like a three or a three plus, so it got a little more intense. And of course, at this point, I'm thinking, I got this. This is not a big deal. Uh, Ones and twos, easy, just jump up one level. How hard can it be? Now, they had trained us, and maybe you know this if you've gone whitewater rafting before, is that they train us that if you get thrown out of the boat, what happens is you don't swim to the side, Don't try to plant your feet or grab something. You can actually really get hurt. Lean back in your raft, put your feet up, ride through the rapids, and then get back in the boat. That's the safest if you get tossed. So after lunch, we get in the boat, and they told us that they wanted people that they thought were maybe a little stronger in the front. So they put my father-in-law, he's a little bigger, stronger than I am in the front right. I was in the front left. And what happens is, all I remember is we're approaching these rapids, and our guide who's in the back, he says, we're about to approach probably the toughest rapids of the day, and they're called 
the hospital bar. They actually name these rapids. And anything called the hospital bar makes me a little bit nervous. And the area after it gets flat, and they called it the recovery room. But I'm still thinking this is no big deal. I got this. All I remember is somehow we go down, shift to the left, pull back hard to the right because of this rock, this big rock in front of us. My father-in-law gets thrown from the right corner to the back of the raft. I get tossed off the side, head over heels. Well, it's like going into a washing machine, so to speak, if you can imagine what that is like. And I just remember coming up for air, and what happens is I hit the bottom of the boat for a second, which causes this instant panic. Well, eventually I get around the side, and I instantly thought what they said. Don't grab the boat. Don't go to the side. I put my feet up. I'm going up and down. Finally get to the recovery room, and one thing is going through my mind. I want to get back in the boat. Well, that turned my world upside down. You see, if you're tossed from a raft or a boat, the first thought in your mind is, how do I get out of this chaos? And how do I get back in the raft where it's safe? You know, it's interesting today that when people, their lives physically get turned upside down, the question is, where do people go? Well, instantly, people go to a hospital, right? It's obvious. I was thrown in the hospital bar. Well, someone gets in a car accident. Nobody thinks, well... Your life's in jeopardy. What should we do? Maybe call 911. Maybe let's give it a break. You pray. You call 911. You get the hospital as fast as you can. It's automatic. It's instinct because we believe hospitals are built to help our physical bodies. Well, let me ask you another question. When somebody's life is turned upside down emotionally and spiritually and relationally, what's the automatic thought that somebody has about where they should go? Sadly, in the minds of an increasing number of people today, that place is not the church. It's not the church. In fact, David Kinneman, who actually went to school together, Biola, interestingly enough, he is the president of Barna Research, one of the most significant research uh, kind of agencies or groups, uh, really in the world, and especially in the Christian, Christian world. He wrote a book a few years ago, but I think his findings are still largely true in our culture. He wrote this book called Unchristian, and they interviewed outsiders, non-believers, how they feel and think about the church. And largely the conclusion that people came to was six big things. In other words, if we talk to someone who doesn't identify as a Christian, how does this person tend to view Christians? And according to the research, he said that Christians are number one, hypocritical, that they say one thing and do another. Second, Christians are too focused on getting converts. We're too focused on getting people just to believe, but not love people entirely for who they are. Third, they said uh, anti-homosexual. In other words, if you say you're Christian in the minds of so many people today, you might as well say, I hate gays. I hope and trust that none of you do, but this is the perception many people have. Fourth, Christians are too sheltered. They don't know what the real world is like. Fifth, too political. And we're seeing a lot of this come out on all sides of the issues today with some of the issues taking place in culture right now. And the last one is judgmental. That Christians are quick to judge other people's actions. Now, can you imagine if it came to hospitals that people thought, well, hospital doctors, they're hypocrites. They don't like gays. They're too political and they're judgmental. People would think twice about going to a hospital. Well, sadly, many people feel that way about the church. The bottom line is this. In the research, David Kinman concludes and he says, only a small percentage associate the church with respect, love, hope, 
and trust. Friends, this is heartbreaking to think about. A friend of mine, he's been a youth pastor probably between uh, almost two decades now. And I asked him, I said, you've seen youth ministry shift in a couple decades. How have things changed in your perspective? And I didn't prep him for anything. He said it kind of used to be that if we just had food and music and games, like kids would show up, feed them, and they come. He said, now one thing I've heard more than I used to hear is that parents will resist sending their kids to church, even though they want their kids to have morals and stay out of trouble. There's increasing voices say, well, what are they really teaching the church? Is it hateful? Is it bigoted? Do they value equality, etc." Now, please hear me. I'm not saying today as we unpack this passage we're going to look at in a minute, that this is a niceness contest, that if we just love more people, they would flock to the church. Friends, the gospel is offensive. But let us ask the question, as culture shifts around us, that if people resist the church and the message of Jesus, let it not be because we don't love and care for them, but because of the gospel and the message itself. So what do we do in a culture that increasingly views Christians through this lens, at least many people that do? Well, I heard a leading New Testament scholar by the name of Daryl Bach. He's at Dallas Theological Seminary. And Darabach was talking about this at an evangelical theological seminary. This is where, or society, where a bunch of professors like myself get together and read papers and talk about ideas in, in the Bible. And uh, he was giving this presentation. He said, the narrative increasingly is that Christians are bigoted, hateful, and homophobic. The way we address this is when somebody hears this, the next thought in their mind is of a Christian that they know. And then they think, you know what? I hear that narrative, but the Christians that I know aren't that way and i think he's right i think he's right look right now there's a lot of racial unrest in our country and a friend of mine a christian pastor who's black he said something stood out to me he said this has been really difficult time for me he said if i didn't have friends who are white that i know they love me and care about me i would be tempted to accept this larger narrative that is negative and that we see in the culture that's not biblical I thought, wow, whether non-believers or believers, relationships are powerful. As culture shifts, if we want to speak into people's lives, we got to have relationships. And this is what we see Jesus model in Mark chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, open up with me to Mark chapter 2. If you can't find it, it's right after Mark chapter 1. Sorry, I couldn't resist. But I'm going to read it for us. So you can turn there or obviously feel free to just listen along. We're going to need three passages. Mark chapter 2 verses 15 through 17. And here's what it says, then we'll unpack this together. It says, And as he, Jesus, reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, when I see a passage like this, something that always jumps to my mind is this. Why were these sinners wanting to be with Jesus? What was it about his character that drew people to a sinless person when they were outcasts and they were sinners themselves? When I think about times in my life where I wasn't following the things God wanted me to do, I didn't find myself being attracted to the people that were 
holy. But somehow they're attracted to Jesus. So what was it about Jesus, the only sinless person who's ever lived, that even sinners were drawn to him? That's a question for all of us to think about. Now in this passage, let's let's discuss some of the details taking place. It says, as he reclined at table in his house. Now I think for those of us in larger Western culture, we may miss some of the significance of what it means to dine with somebody in an Eastern culture. You see, dining was one of the most important relational things that were done in Eastern cultures, even today, but in the time of Jesus. If you sat down and shared a meal with somebody, you were saying, I accept you and I consider you a friend. So amidst the busyness of life, people were to sit down, break bread together. This is where relationships were built, stories were told, and people just connected together. This is a part of what makes the betrayal of Judas so egregious, is notice where it took place when they were sharing a meal together. Part of what made it so just horrible is that Judas discovers at a meal breaking bread with Jesus that he would in fact betray him. Jesus chose that setting to make sure his audience didn't miss how deep Judas's betrayal actually was. So Jesus is sitting down with these sinners and he's breaking bread with them. He's connecting with them. He's fellowshipping with them. He's talking to them. He's listening to them. He's sharing with them. This was a radical thing in that culture for Jesus to do. But then it says next, it says, Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, most of you probably know how oppressive the tax system was at this point. Tax collectors, at least according to the Jews, were considered some of the greatest outcasts and betrayers of their own people. Now, why? Because they would work for Herod or on behalf of the larger Roman government to go take taxes from their own people. And then what the tax collectors would do is they would siphon some off the top and keep it for themselves. So imagine if you're a Jew at this time, you're being oppressed by the Roman Empire, and one of your own people says, you know what, I'm going to side with the Romans and take advantage of you. Of course they'd be angry with them. Tax collectors in many ways were kind of the scum of the earth. They were viewed as being the low of the low to people at that time. So what's interesting about this is when he says sinners, when I first read this passage, I thought, well, he was sitting down with murderers and thieves and prostitutes, the big sins we typically think of. Well, there could have been different sinners of kinds like that. Really what we're supposed to believe is these are people that are not following the law. These are people that are not following all the religious prescriptions that the Pharisees at that time thought that they should. Now this, of course, in the passage brings us to the Pharisees. Who were these people? They're described, they're described as the scribes of the Pharisees. Now, interestingly enough, Paul was a Pharisee before he became a believer, and he kept many of the Pharisaical beliefs as he became a Christian. If you look at the, the Jewish culture at this time, the religious culture, there were very conservative Jews and those who'd be considered more liberal. So there are groups like the Essenes that lived at Qumran with the Dead Sea Scroll that separated themselves from society. There were the Sadducees that did not believe in an afterlife and based their relationship with God on work in the temple. So when the temple's destroyed, the Sadducees disappear. 
But then you have the Pharisees who were based their relationship with God following the 613 laws from the Old Testament. So can you see when the temples are destroyed in AD 70, the Pharisees say, well, we still have the law. Let's come up and write new books, Mishnah, Talmud, about interpreting the law. So the Pharisees continue after this time. But essentially, this is a group that felt like their relationship with God was tied deeply to closely following the prescriptions of the law. This is a part of what it meant to be a Pharisee. Now, in this next statement by Jesus, this sums up the purpose of this passage. This is where Jesus gets to the heart of it. He says this. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let me say it again. This is Mark 2, verse 17. Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So here's the question. Is Jesus saying that only some are sick? Is Jesus saying, well, there's two groups of people. And by the way, we all have a tendency to do this, don't we? I, uh, I played basketball at Biola University, and my coach is a PhD, two or three masters, brilliant. He's already in the Hall of Fame, the NAI, for being an amazing coach and even a better person. I learned a lot of life lessons from him. One of the things he would say, interestingly enough, is he'd say there's two kinds of people in the world, those who return their shopping carts and those who don't. And that always has stuck with me. So whenever I'm shopping and I don't return my cart, I'm thinking, I'm that guy. I better return my cart. Well, we have this tendency to put people into two categories, and sometimes it's helpful. Well, in this case, is that what Jesus is doing? Is Jesus saying, well, there's righteous and there's sinners, and I came to call the sinners, not the righteous. We actually know for sure that this is not what Jesus is saying. How do we know this? Because Romans 3.23 tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, if you actually look in the original Greek, do you know what all means? Yeah, it means all. There's nothing fancy to it. It means everyone without exception. All past, present, future have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, except Jesus, of course, the only exception. In fact, 1 John 1.8, John the Apostle Jesus says, if you say you don't have sin, you're actually in darkness and you're not in the light. You're deceived. Jesus said it's out of the heart in Mark chapter 7 that comes laziness and lust and sloth and pride and anger. All have sinned and fall short. So what does Jesus mean when he says he came not for the righteous, but for sinners? Jesus is using righteous ironically towards the Pharisees. You see, he's not saying they're righteous. He's saying they're self righteous and they don't even see that they're sick and need the medicine that Jesus has to offer. You see, Jesus didn't come for people who say, I'm fine. I got to figure it out. I know the law that I can follow. Jesus basically saying, I'm not wasting my time with those people because they're not open to the message I have to hear. I'm coming for those, although everybody is sick, so to speak. I'm coming for those who are sick spiritually speaking, who are open to the medicine that I have to offer. Now look, think about it. Who goes to a doctor? It's not just those who are sick. And it's not just those who know that they're sick. It's those who are sick 
and who know it and who are willing to humble themselves, so to speak, and go to somebody else for their expertise to help them get better. You see, if you're sick, the only way you can get better is if you say to somebody else, I can't fix myself. I need your help to fix me. That's what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying to the Pharisees, he's saying, look, you don't even think you need me. You are so self-righteous. You think you got it all figured out. I didn't come for you. Rather, I came to the sinners because they know they're broken and they know that they need me. But here's the key. Jesus was not a moralist. Jesus did not go around to people saying, you've got to get your life right first and then you can come to me. Jesus was not a moralist. Rather, what Jesus did is he went out in relationship with people and he knew they couldn't change their lives and become the kind of people God wanted them to be until they experienced his medicine, his grace, to change them from the inside out. You see, one of the mistakes we make is sometimes we go around wanting to tell everybody how to live their lives first and then they're welcome into our club. Now, there is a sense where non-believers know the moral law and are held accountable to it. Paul describes this in Romans chapter 2, that even people without the law know the law. But on the flip side, I think Jesus also knows that he's going to go out where people are to broken people, to outcasts, and risk being castigated by the larger community because he knows they need the medicine that he has to offer. But also keep in mind, Jesus doesn't show up and build relationships with the people and say, hey, to each his own, live however you want to. I'm not here to judge. Jesus loved people, but he also spoke truth. So as our culture shifts around us, how do we engage people relationally and lovingly without compromising the truth of the gospel? That's the question. I'm a, I'm a comic book guy. You can see over my shoulder, there's a little Spider-Man down on the bottom, right? I can't even point to it correctly. Right over, right there, you can see it. There's a Thanos, uh, somebody made for me a Thanos glove if you followed Marvel. I love superheroes. I have kids. But the story came out probably a few years ago, maybe six, eight years ago, about this character by the name of Iceman, who's a part of this superhero group called the X-Men. And it came out, the story was Iceman is gay. And there was a, a Christian spokesman who came out and said, here goes Marvel again, indoctrinating our culture, telling people that this is okay, shame on Marvel. And of course, the larger media picked up on this and tried to shame the conservative for saying this. Well, I heard that and I understand his hesitation because I do think movies incorporate certain characters and tell stories that shape the larger society. But I also thought, how if somebody asked me, hey, you're a Christian, what do you think about this story of Iceman being gay? How would I respond? How could I lead with grace relationally to maybe have the chance at the right time in the right way to be able to speak truth into somebody's life? So at that time, some came to me and said, hey, you're a Christian. Uh, I understand you've actually written about same-sex marriage and said that it's outside of God's design. So what do you think about Iceman being gay? My response would be, you know what, I'm not surprised. Our culture is shifting, has different understandings as a whole of relationships. Marvel's a business. They're probably trying to represent everybody and make sure they don't alienate anyone. I'm not surprised that Marvel would do this. But you're a Christian. Don't you think that's wrong? I would say, I am a Christian. 
Because I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm bound to follow the teachings of Jesus and what he said about marriage. But the reality is LGBT kids are more likely to be depressed, more likely to be lonely, more likely to be hurting. Maybe Marvel's doing this, yes, for business, but maybe they are actually trying to help kids by doing this. Now, I might differ with Marvel and their worldview and how they approach this, but given that LGBTQ kids are hurting so much today, maybe we could lock arms and find some common ground. I'm not saying you have to respond the way that I did, but as our culture shifts around us, how do we stick to the truth of the gospel, but lead with grace and kindness? I, uh, I read a book not long ago by a commentator. You might recognize her name, Kirsten Powers. She used to be with Fox. Now she's, I believe, a kind of a guest commentator regularly on CNN. She has written uh, for USA Today and other publications. Well, Kirsten Powers growing up was at least an atheist or an agnostic to not believe in God. And she's written that she basically thought Christians were idiots. And we get together with her friends and talk about how dumb and ignorant and harmful Christians are until she met a guy. And there was something different about this guy. He didn't fit the norm of what a Christian was supposed to be like. So he said something to Kirsten. He said, and keep in mind, she was very progressive and on the left politically and religiously. And she, he says to her, he says, do you consider yourself open-minded enough to consider going to church and hearing a different perspective? Now, that kind of claim should appeal to anybody, but especially people who describe themselves as progressive, open-mindedness is a virtue that they tend to hold on to very strongly. At least many of my progressive friends do. And she was like, I was trapped. I had to go. So she goes to church, and it turns out it was in Manhattan. It was Redeemer Press, and the pastor was Timothy Keller. And at that time, he was going through a series called The Reason for God. He was walking through the evidence for the Bible, evidence for the resurrection, evidence that God exists, reasons why God allows pain, answering these tough questions. She had never heard this before, and she ends up becoming a Christian. Well, she wrote a book called The Silencing, and what's interesting, even though she's a Christian, she is farther to the left of me on a lot of political and moral social issues. So if you're on the left, and she wrote a book criticizing the left, saying that the left, many of them have lost some of their commitment to, say, free speech, human rights, etc. So coming from someone on the left is very interesting kind of voice. It's a fascinating book. So she walks through the book, how you see it in education, how you see it in entertainment, how you see it in the universities and culture. And then she gets to the end. She says, how do we change so we don't have a culture that just silences and shuts people down, but we listen to people? So I'm reading it going, this is a pretty interesting book. I get to the end and her solution was in probably two lines in one paragraph. And I read it at first, and this is a hardcover book, which I don't know, probably cost me 23, 25 bucks. I remember I took it and I threw it across my desk. I was like, really? I spent $25 on this and this is all she gives me? But then I thought about it some more. And then I thought about it some more. And I started to realize there was some real wisdom and what she said. You know what she said? She said, look, despite all appearances to the contrary, it's not familiarity that breeds contempt. She said, it's actually relationships together that breeds understanding. She said, go out and make some unlikely friends. And I heard that and I thought, there is something brilliant about her perspective. 
she's right. In a sense, this is what Jesus did. He didn't stay in the safety bubble of, say, his church and his community. He went out to those who saw the world differently. And he built relationships with them so he could speak truth into their lives. I was speaking at a church not far from you, uh, somewhere else in North Carolina. I was driving with a pastor to speak that morning. And not far from his church, we drove by another church that was a Unitarian church that essentially says, all beliefs are welcome. Just God is not a trinity. But if you have a certain particular belief, that's fine. You're welcome here. Great. So we're driving by. I said, hey, have you ever gone by and met this pastor or reverend and, and talked to them? And he kind of said, no, why would I do that? And I said, well, you're a pastor. He's a pastor. Doesn't know Jesus. Go and invite him to coffee and talk. Build a relationship. Otherwise, this pastor is never going to listen to the gospel. If you build a relationship with him, not just to win an argument and convert him, but to love him with the hopes that he would believe in Jesus, then you're in a position to speak into his life. You see, Jesus models for us powerfully in this passage what it means to go out to those who are sick, who are broken, because our world desperately needs this. The question is, how much will you follow this example of Jesus and step out of your comfort zone? So let me ask you as we end kind of three big questions and a story to kind of summarize each one of these. One is this. How do you show love to people who are different from you? Could be different politically. Could be different racially. Could be different religiously. How do you reach out and invite people into your life that see the world differently? So number one, we can have more compassion for them. But number two, we can have the relational capital to speak truth into their lives. I kind of hesitated to share the story for a number of reasons, but this past year we've had a student from an inner city near where we live uh, come live with us. High school kid, and he's basically become, his mom said she refers to us as his family, which is really moving. And we've learned a ton from him about how he sees the world, about his experience, about his life. I think he's learned a ton from us. And he had been home for a while during the whole COVID thing, and he came back, and his mom was going to drop him off. And my son, he goes, hey, can we just invite her to stay for dinner? I thought, what a beautiful idea. And we just sat down, didn't debate anything, didn't talk about a lot of the issues going on in the world, just listened to each other's stories. And I gained compassion and understanding for what she's going through. And I think she saw a greater side of us and our care for her son. So my question is, how do you show love? Is there somebody in your life, whether racially or socially or on some other issue, you can just reach out to and say, let's get a meal. Let's talk. Let's connect. Let's hear each other's stories. Second, how do you show love to non-Christians in your life? Do you invite people who not only think Christianity is false, but maybe some people who think Christianity is dangerous and bad. I have a YouTube channel every week or two, I do an interview or a load of talk or something, kind of an apologetics and culture and worldview. And I met this youth pastor and his story was so interesting. I said, hey, can I just briefly interview you like four minutes for my YouTube channel? He said, yes. And it, what happened is with his story is he was asked to be a club director for an LGBTQ club at a public school. He said, yes. I said, why'd you say yes? He goes, because LGBTQ kids want to hang out with me. 
why wouldn't I? I said, fair enough. Even though some people would criticize this and say you're endorsing it, you wanted to be in relationship with them. I said, well, what were the clubs like? What were the club discussions? He said a lot of the discussions were just about this group of people, at least at his school, felt marginalized. They felt hated. They felt like outcasts and that people didn't understand and really love them. He said eventually they asked him, he's like, why don't you hate us? He said, I don't hate you because I'm a Christian. I think everybody's made in the image of God. I love and care about you. And they said, you're a Christian. What does the Bible say about homosexuality? So he turns to Genesis 1 turns to Leviticus 18, Romans 1, but he says very quickly he wanted to actually shift from just talking about sexuality to talking about the person of Jesus. Who is Jesus? What was the compassion and care that he lived in his life and exemplified towards the marginalized and oppressed and outcasts? Eventually, four of them came to his youth group, and three of them became believers in Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that? That never would happen had he not stepped out of his comfort zone, built a relationship leading with love. Three of them became believers in Jesus Christ. Now I asked him, I said, how did this change you? He goes, honestly, Sean, I don't think I realized how bigoted and angry I was towards this community until I got to know some of them. And it broke my heart to see the pain and hurt that they're going through. Friends, we live in a culture that's shifting all around us. As we have seen, sometimes within hours or with days, things can shift. But the gospel is eternal. The issues of the day may change, but the example of Jesus lasts forever. My question for you is this. Amidst the craziness going on in our world today, what's one small step, maybe online, maybe in person, that you can take to reach out to love people who see the world differently than you. Maybe some of the people society considers outcasts for whatever reason. Maybe some of the people that think Christianity is crazy, whatever it is. Maybe just people who see the world differently and just reach out to them and say, you know, what? let's have a meal. Tell me a story. I love you and care for them as people, hoping and praying that God gives you the chance to share the gospel. That's my hope and challenge for you to hold on to as the culture shifts around us. Again, Pastor Scott, Pastor Dave, I'm really honored at this opportunity. And I will be praying for your church as you go through this important series. God bless.